Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude, and today I have the great pleasure and tremendous honor to bring on the show, Meredith Gold. Meredith Gold is a scenario-based full-force self-defense instructor. She's been teaching adrenal stress scenario training, also known as ASST, to adults and teens since 1992 and started her empowerment-based assertive communication and self-defense program, Raw Power Real World Self-Defense, in 2000. Meredith's primary focus has always been teaching self-defense and verbal empowerment skills to previously untrained women and teens, but her focus has expanded to other high-risk targeted communities, including LGBTQ and AAPI. She has also been instrumental in bringing awareness of this training method to the martial arts community. She and her husband slash training partner, Michael Belzer, have offered trainings and instructor certifications to martial artists all around the world. A contributing editor for Black Belt Magazine for five years, Meredith was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 2003 when they named her their Woman of the Year. Welcome to the show, Meredith. I am so excited to have you here. I am really delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Well, from the first time I heard you being interviewed, which I think was on the Managing Violence podcast, yeah, I think I think that was like right after that was when I reached out to you because I was like, I have got to talk to this woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, had a great experience with Joe. That was a that was a tremendous interview. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. In fact, I should probably put a link to that in the show notes for this one uh, because I'm sure we'll talk about different things in this conversation. Great. So before we jump into the nitty gritty stuff, I like to kind of warm up with some different kinds of questions. So are you ready for that? Yes, totally. All right. Well, I always like to know like what kind of input my guests' brains are getting. So can you share like what book you're currently reading or what podcast you're currently into? Oh, wow. That is so interesting because I have just expanded my podcast world and I haven't really settled on anything. I mean, at, at risk of, of sounding too pandering, I'm really enjoying your podcast. I've been listening to past episodes and really learning so, so, so much, really enjoying them. Well, I, I gotta say, I really appreciate that because, you know, oftentimes guests have only listened to like one episode or two episodes. And then I've heard from other people that when they, when they start to listen, they binge and uh, there's 55 episodes in season one. So that's a lot of binging. So that's a lot of binging. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's definitely a lot to binge on. And as far as, as you know, listening to, I, I've been listening to books more than anything. And I have to be honest that the reality is that I think like so many people during this last surreal year, I just wanted to sort of escape. Like I just, mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to, to take myself to a different place. And so I actually have been listening, re-listening to books by a satirical writer named Christopher Moore. So that's actually what I've been listening to. I wish I could say that I had something 
that I was listening to recently that was really focused on my line of work. But I, like so many people, have been transitioning back into my real life after being so deeply affected by by this last year and and the changes that we all went through. And I I'm only now in the last gosh, probably three or four months, really starting to wake up and and re-engage and and get my head back on straight. I don't know if I was, you know, if that if I'm uncommon or if that's a super common thing, but I I just really because it droned on for so long, every time I would start to feel like, okay, I'm going to get it in gear and I'm going to be hopeful something else would happen and things would get extended. And there was that huge question mark hanging over all of us of when is, when is this going to resolve? And of course, it still hasn't completely. But yeah, so I went into escapist mode. I will admit that. I think that's great. I, I had, not this last year, but I had probably a decade of using books as my escape from daily life, you know, just loved being able to dive into a completely different world and not have to face the stuff that I was dealing with day in, day out, constantly all the time. So I can totally relate to that. As you know, this last year for me, I I had an escape forced on me because we had this, <laughs> that litter of a dozen puppies to look after to start with. And so that that really started me off on that track. And I also dove into things that were not directly related to the work of empowerment and self-defense, you know, more things about self-care and things about just fun. I think yeah. this, this last year, I really tried to emphasize things that are fun because everything felt so heavy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely way out of balance. Yeah. And yeah, those opportunities to create levity or a release from just that oppressive kind of stress and uncertainty became just a primary necessity yeah. for most of us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really did. Well, now that things are changing and people are starting to go out and about a little bit, I, I can ask this question. I didn't really ask it at all during the whole pandemic because it would have been weird. But what's your favorite place to go on vacation? <laughs> you know, it's I'm super duper torn. I grew up at the beach and currently don't live at the beach. And so when I'm in a, a location where there's an ocean, particularly enjoy a tropical ocean, I'm super drawn there. But I have a deep imprint from childhood for the mountains and, and pine air and wide open skies. And so if I had to just pick one, it would be going to the mountains, which I just did up in, in Oregon, which was absolutely rejuvenating and fantastic. So yeah, I think, I think wide open spaces and clouds and pine scented air is my idea of heaven. Oh, that sounds great. That's kind of where I moved to actually after 30 <laughs> years in Silicon Valley, you know, up here in Coyoteville. We, we are up in the Sierra foothills and uh, we've got pine and cedar and we do have that like freshness. I think that you're, you're talking about. I'm jealous. That's so <laughs> great. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Los well, Angeles is a, a long way from that. Yeah. Well, and for me too, you know, 30 years in Silicon Valley, I look back at that, like how on earth did I manage that, you know, when really being in the great outdoors and and having the space and being able to see the sky and 
all of that really is such a, you know, for me, it's also a very foundational part of who I am as well, because I grew up in Oklahoma. So wide open spaces right there. No, no beaches really. In right. <laughs> no, no, not so much. <laughs> well, what is your favorite self-care practice? You know, I really got into going on walks. That that really became a refuge during the last really difficult year. Just a, my husband always says it, but I completely agree. It's like, you know, change your environment, change your attitude. And so I I knew mm-hmm. that if I was just starting to really feel too burdened by everything, too sort of myopic about what was happening in the world, too much TV, whatever, that literally just putting my shoes on and and getting out the door. Like I didn't want to do it a lot of days. I just didn't want to do it, but I never regretted it. Just put the shoes on and pick a direction and just start walking. And before I knew it, my mood had lifted. I mean, it's obviously (laughs) a well-documented phenomenon. It's nothing that I discovered, but that became a real refuge. Sometimes it would be up in the local foothills here in LA. And other times it was just on the city streets, but it was just movement and feeling my body. And I guess in some way, in a time where so many things felt out of control, that was comforting to me. Like it was something that was within my control and really easy to do. Mm-hmm. Attempt it doesn't you know, require ma- equipment either. Doesn't require equipment. That's that's right. And you know, it can either be something that's really fitness based or just a really enjoyable, slow experience. And and so that really became sort of a go to because gyms weren't available, like the the stuff that I would usually do that would, so many of us were in the same boat, you know, everything's closed. And and the ways that I would blow off steam or just sort of reconnect with myself were all of a sudden unavailable. So yeah, that was, that was a go-to that I am, you know, if, if, if nothing else, I can say that it forced that upon me just to recognize how simple it can be to do something that really is um, kind of profound. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. My mother was a walker. She, she walked and she was English, so she walked all the time, but oh yeah, she walked all the way up until the last couple months of her life, even, you know, when she was in her late eighties and you know, she wasn't super, she wasn't decrepit, but she also wasn't in super, super great health. But every day she would get out and walk and she would take our dogs out with her. And it got her out of the house and moving and actually introduced her to a lot of people in the neighborhood that she otherwise would never have met. So there's a lot of benefits to just getting out there and moving your feet and, you know, just appreciating that you can get out and walk because, you know, sometimes you can't. For her, she ended up in a in a state where walking started to be painful and I, w- I would try to take her out in a wheelchair so she could still get that experience of being outside and moving through the neighborhood and you know hearing the birds and smelling people yeah. cooking dinner and or breakfast yeah. and <laughs> all that stuff so yeah you're right it's it's kind of cool when you realize that something so simple can actually bring such profound benefits definitely what advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? <laughs> oh, boy. Really, I think the main thing is trust what you're feeling. There's, there's so much socialization that, that works against that, obviously. And 
you know, by the, by the time I was in my twenties, I had already had a, a life-changing assault happen. And so I, I, you know, I, I think I already was living in sort of a, a different frame of mind that had, had grown. And, and I, I, I was in a very self-limited place because I, I didn't know that I had any options. But if someone had, had told me that to just really trust what I'm feeling, act on it, and don't be so concerned about how other people are receiving what you're saying, I, I know I would have made so many different life choices. And I mean, it's a, a tale as old as the, as the hills, but just learning how to speak up you know, acknowledge when something doesn't look right, sound right or feel right, and and be able to act upon it was really quite revolutionary for me. So I really, really, really encourage, and I love working with teenage, you know, young women and and you know people at the beginning of their independent life experience, and to to help them with that message so that they really integrate it into their being. Because it it helps in every area, not just our personal safety out in the world, but in all of our interactions with people, family, friends, coworkers, everything. So, yeah, trust what you're feeling. Give yourself permission to act on it, and and just know that our intuition is is generally working in our favor. So it's important to listen to it. Mm-hmm. I love that. I I really do love that. That's where you start and. You're right that when younger folks can start to become conscious of this kind of thing, it really can help. That's that's one reason why I started the show, really, and why I asked that question is because I I have four kids, I have two daughters, and you know I did my best to impart wisdom along the way, but it's hard to get the message through when you're just one person. And I think all of us giving this kind of you know hard won, hard learned insight. <laughs> And yeah. you know, encouraging the development of some of these skills and tools for for folks of a much younger age is the thing that's going to make a big difference. Yeah, and and to approach it just you know as a life skill, like so many other things that are prioritized and are taught in school and are instilled in us at an early age. I mean, you know, there's there's no reason that that message shouldn't be just you know mixed right in there and and giving people an opportunity to practice how to communicate effectively and assertively like as a life skill as as something that is as important as any other topic that we're learning in school so i know that it's getting there little by little the the awareness of the value of that is 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 being acknowledged and there are some schools mainly private schools that are actually starting to integrate that kind of content and curriculum, but we have a long way to go <laughs> in yeah, terms of <laughs> really prioritizing. Yeah. Well, what was your first experience of feeling unsafe? I'm trying to think like as a as a as a young person, as a as a kid, I grew up in a neighborhood where no one even locked their front doors. We didn't even have a key to our front door. It had antique hardware on it, I remember. And it was always open and the car doors were never locked. It was just, he's kind of lived, you know, in, in the country as far as Los Angeles goes. I, I grew up way out on Point Doom in Malibu 
which in the <laughs> point doom, in, yeah, D D U M E, not D O O M, and uh, and it was the country. You know, in the in the seventies, it was it was you know no street lights, no sidewalks. It was just, it was kind of the country, and so I just didn't have any awareness that 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 there was danger. I, I know that sounds insane, but it it really was that way in the early seventies. It was a very super safe. I mean, obviously bad stuff was happening, but it wasn't, there was no internet. There was no, it wasn't being broadcast. So I would have to say that unfortunately for me, really the, the giant wake up call that, that I was not safe was when, when I was assaulted at, at age 15. And I think that, you know, that going from that kind of insulated not not naive, not a super sheltered, I don't know what's going on in the world kind of a life, but just one where nothing had touched me in that regard yet. That's what made it so shocking and ultimately such a powerfully detrimental experience because it was so completely in contrast to the safety I had always felt prior to it. Oh, wow. Well, can you share a little bit about, about what that incident was and... I assume I could be wrong, but is is that what sort of set you on the path to learning learning self defense and becoming a coach? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's specifically what what happened. I I was walking home in in my own neighborhood, and and I had I had moved into into town. We weren't still out in the in in the country where where I grew up, but as a teenager, we lived in the city, and and I we, we lived in in Beverly Hills, as it happened. And I was walking home on a Sunday afternoon after sleeping over at a friend's house. And someone was following me in a pickup truck. And he drove ahead of me and double parked and left his car idling in the street and got out and walked down the sidewalk right in my face and said, nice titties. And it was, you know, it was the, it was the perfect, I mean, I use it as an example when I teach because it was the perfect assault. Like it, it had all the elements that we're always talking about, you know, mm-hmm. being prepared for. So he captured my mind, right? It was the equivalent of punching me in the face, nice titties. And right. then he kept walking and now he was behind me. And I did the thing that he anticipated I would do, which is I sort of locked up and, you know, froze for a second and then thought, oh God, I've got to get away from this guy. And so I scurried away from the man that was now behind me, but because he had double parked up ahead, he was able to just, as I scurried away toward his waiting car, he was able to run up behind me and grab me around the waist and drag me to his truck. And again, it was really, it was, it was one block off of a, a main thoroughfare in a residential area on a Sunday afternoon. So it basically checked all the boxes of, it can't happen now. And right. it was all of those. And luckily for me, as he let go with one hand to open the passenger door to shove me inside. My my brain just, you know, came back online. And I thought if I get in that car, I mean, I, who knows, I may never be heard from again. So I just screamed and flailed and made myself really hard to hold on to. I, I remember he was shorter than me. And I remember that I was just sort of flapping my arms, like, you know, kind of chaotically. And I think inadvertently probably raining down elbows because I was taller than him. And I remember he covered his face. I remember his hands covering his face, which allowed me to run. And I and I just ran as fast as I could. 
and I didn't see him get in his car, but obviously he fled also. And I remember running about a block and I hid behind a parked car in a driveway. And I remember thinking, God, this is what is this is like a, like a, a TV show. Like what, what's going to happen now? It was this, the weirdest experience of just like denial. Is this really happening to me? And I looked and he was gone and I just ran all the way home. And luckily my mom was home and I'm the youngest of five girls and nothing had ever happened to anyone else in like that. And so, you know, for my, for my parents, it was just like, wait, wait, what's, you know, are you okay? Okay. We'll call the police. And the police showed up really fast. And I gave them a description of the guy. He was short and had red hair and a handlebar mustache and was wearing cutoff jeans. And he was barefoot because I remember hearing his feet slapping on the cement and he was driving a white pickup truck, which, you know, understanding what I do now about the physiological effects of adrenaline and how hard it is to focus on things and break tunnel vision and remember anything. Um, yeah. The fact that I could do all of that and give them that kind of description now, I think, right on, girl. But of yeah. course, it was 1980, and this is a long time ago, and there was just no no public acknowledgement that, you know, this was happening. And, you know, the, the cop, he was perfectly polite, but he just basically patted me on the shoulder and said, you're fine. You're fine. We'll probably never catch him, but you're okay. And my parents, again, because of the time, the era, it was like, we didn't have the public discussion. We didn't have the normalization of it through acknowledgement. Like, and we didn't have shows like Oprah and stuff who were allowing people to talk about this. So my parents just were like, okay, you're fine. Let's never talk about this again. So we didn't. We just never talked wow. about it again because I was fine. And and I'm, I can't blame them. I mean, they didn't have anything to go from. And it was a classic denial reaction. And unfortunately for me, it just festered and it got worse and worse. My I developed, you know, some post-traumatic stress disorder. I just I never really felt safe, even if I was out in public. You know, on a on a sunny day, I just if a if a man would walk toward me, my palms would sweat and my heart would race, and I'd usually just cross the street, which of course I later learned like good tactic, you know, target yeah. denial. <laughs> so I was already instinctively doing some stuff to try to stay safe. But I realized later that the main way, because I my life was not a prison, it really wasn't. I I have very wonderful memories of my teenage years. And I was not feeling vulnerable at all times and completely limited and shut down because the main, in, in retrospect, the main change that I made was that I, I, I made sure that I was alone as infrequently as possible. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because I'm the most social out of all the sisters, like by a mile, I'm the most social because my mom's not a very social person. But I see now that that was an adaptation I mean, I really like people and I'm happy to be super social, but it was also a safety strategy that I un, yeah. you know, unconsciously was building in. Like, I'm, I'm going to be safe if I'm surrounded by people. Right. Well, all very intelligent choices, really, you know, given that there wasn't anybody who was supporting you and helping you parse through what had happened and come up with a plan. And, and that yeah. was all just you responding you know, with your own raw intelligence and insight to come up with some strategies. That was great. It was completely but, unconscious. But yeah, I mean, I've, you know, in truth, as terrible as that experience was, it's provided invaluable source material as a mm -hmm. teacher. 
And of course, you know, not only because I can use my own example as this is how it can often happen and, and this is what it might look like, but also because, you know, it's, it's, it's something that allows me to be a little more relatable to the students. Yeah. They can say, ah, yeah, you, you lived through it. And not only are you, you know, did you survive, but look what you decided to do with it. So I, I definitely have decided to view it as something that has just, you know, ultimately been a, a real positive in my life because it put me on a completely different track that I, I might never have even thought of if the circumstances hadn't presented themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it sucks that you went through it, but it's great that it, it really did put you on a path to do something that is clearly your, your gift and, and your, well, one of your many gifts, you know, your, your thing to do in the world that will make a big difference. I, yeah. I also find just in hearing you tell the story, how many teaching points there really are there. You, know, you mentioned <laughs> know. like the, the verbal thing, right. And um, working with coach Blower, Tony Blower, one of the things I remember that he said, Hey, back when I was first starting to work with him was he would ask a class, like, where, where do you usually get hit first in an assault? And, you know, you ask that question and people always say, well, you know, probably like a, in the face, right? Like a slap or a punch to the face or, you know, something like that. And his response is always, no, I mean, you get hit emotionally first. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, your story is a great illustration of that. And the way you languaged it of, you know, he captured my mind is, I mean, you can talk quite a while at what that dynamic is and and what the effect of that is. and what you know, like you said, you were kind of in like the free state temporarily. Yeah. And so it just, it opens up so many doorways to talk about the things that we need to talk about that, that give the insight and the understanding so that when a woman is in a similar situation, it's like, Oh, I I recognize this. Yeah. That's right. You know, that's right. It's a, it's a great teaching story. So how did you get into martial arts? Was that an outgrowth of this experience? It really, I, I lived for nine years. I, I was 15 when I was assaulted and I lived for nine years just with, again, with that, you know, duality of having a completely full, you know, thriving life and also living in, in fear when I was alone. And I was moving into an apartment by myself I, in the Hollywood Hills that was very remote. And I thought, it's now or never. You need to learn some self-defense. You have to learn some self-defense. And so I found Impact Personal Safety, which is a terrific program here in LA. And that was, gosh, 80, 89 or 90, I think. I think it was 1990. And I had read an article in People Magazine about this program and thought about it for six months, <laughs> like so many people do. <laughs> and then just finally decided, like, I have, I have to do it. I'd never even seen a demonstration of it. I'd never seen any footage. I had only seen a still shot that accompanied the magazine. And I went and it completely changed my life. It, it was the greatest. I mean, it, I, so many people have told similar stories, but it's absolutely true. I, I almost instantly felt different about my spot in the world, my place in the world, what my abilities and rights were. And it answered so many questions. And it really also relieved a lot of internal 
guilt, but sort of just like a sort of heaviness of, you know, I, what could I have done? What, why, why didn't I do something? And it was, you know, it was just revolutionary for me to, to know, you know, physiologically why I didn't and, and to understand that, you know, you can't, can't be hard on yourself for something that you never even knew was a possibility. Like mm-hmm. being able to say, no, don't talk to me like that. Get away. Like all the stuff that in retrospect, if I had been taught, I would have done it. So anyway, it was, it was amazing. And I was more, even more powerful than my own experience was the experience of being in completely non-judgmental supportive group of women. Everyone was there for a version of the same reasons, re-empower themselves. And many of these classmates had the horrifying stories like and again I, I wasn't a particularly sheltered naive person but i had never heard stories like this of what they had endured in their lives and yet there they were ready to you know go through it to, to come out the other side stronger and i was just amazed and blown away and i thought i just have to make this in some way i have to make this a part of my life and at the time, I had I had a, a long career as an assistant film editor, and it just didn't. It was fun, and and I enjoyed it, and I made a whole bunch of money, but I just didn't feel like I was doing anything for the world. Mm-hmm. So it was really great. It was it was really helpful and and beneficial to have another outlet. Well, what's really interesting to me is that you you came like straight to self-defense. You did not go through martial arts and then discover self-defense. You went straight into, you know, a scenario-based training program that that is for true violent encounters. And like, I, a lot of, I lucked a out. lot of I, people don't, you know, so I, it's really fascinating that you, you did that and you didn't do that middle step, especially because, you know, as, as your bio says, you work with people in martial arts to, you know, help them, see the value of this kind of training. And so can you talk a little bit about that conversation and and how the martial arts are different from doing this kind of reality-based scenario training with assailants that you can actually hit with a decent amount of power? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I I feel for my needs, for for what it was I, I was seeking to feel safe again in the world, I totally scored by by picking up that that issue of, of People magazine and and seeing that this thing existed because it took me in a direct line to what it was that was going to most immediately give me what I needed. But through that experience, I met a man who would later become my husband, who was one of the male instructors, and he was a lifelong martial artist training in many, many, many systems. And, and so when he and I started to train together more earnestly, I was, you know, my mind was opened because, you know, the, the impact personal safety model really didn't incorporate or, or sort of, you know, involve any kind of traditional martial art component. They weren't teaching martial artists per se, you know, it was a different student base. So I, I just hadn't had a lot of exposure to it. So my husband, Mike Belzer, had uh, many, many martial arts affiliations in Los Angeles. And so through him, I was able to start seeing that world more closely. And then I decided to start training. I, I wanted to, to 
to do something else other than this full force training. So I got into Muay Thai for a while, a little while. And I had the really great good fortune to do that at the Inosanto Academy with Ron Balicki, who oh, man. was, yeah, it was a long time ago. This was in the early 90s. And Mike and Ron were friends. Mike, Mike was a, a long time Inosanto student, and then he became a, an instructor under Inosanto. So he had a long affiliation there. So he said, oh, yeah, you want Muay Thai? I, I, I know a guy. I got a guy. And so Ron <laughs> and I started to train, and I trained privately with him. And it was really amazing. I mean, you know, it was hilarious because I'm six feet tall and have super long legs. So these are things that in Muay Thai are not necessarily a really great thing because I, I was, I was big target and didn't really move super fast. And so when I would train with Ron, I would just, my legs would just be like, you know, every shade of the rainbow from mid thigh to <laughs> mid calf. But I was so proud. I'd go to work wearing a mini skirt, like, oh yeah, check them out. I was always showing off my war wounds. So I did, I did some Muay Thai because I really felt like that had the closest feeling of the full force training. And I didn't feel like, I think my biggest concern was always having started with the, I'm not holding anything back that if I got into a traditional martial art realm where I, by design, had to, you know, because you can't hurt your right. training partner, that I don't know. I just, I, I think I just felt really nervous, insecure and nervous. Like, am I going to, am I just, am I going to be able to make that adaptation? And, and so I, I decided to go with one that I felt was a little gnarlier and, and I really, really enjoyed it. And from a fitness component, I mean, it was amazing. I've never been in the kind of shape I was in from Muay Thai. So I loved it. But in truth, I have not found any traditional art that I really felt I was so enamored with that I wanted to do the whole journey. Mm -hmm. I just, so I never, I never, you know, decided to start at the beginning and go all the way through a system. I guess for me, because my focus has always been what's going to be most efficient and effective in a real crisis, the rest of yeah. it was not that appealing to me. So, so what happened was I was you know, Mike and I left Impact Personal Safety in the late 90s and with some other instructors. And, and after a while, we just started to work more within the martial arts community. We'd go to different dojos and we would do demos and we would give them an opportunity to try some of their stuff that they've been working on, you know, in a real scenario and give them an opportunity to sort of figure out what holds up well under the stress of adrenaline, what is going to be useless in a crisis, you know, and, and help them refine their toolboxes. And so that was sort of how raw power came to be, where we decided to just, you know, we still definitely offering classes for women and teens, specifically, you know, in a, in a gender specific environment, because that does provide a, a different level of, uh, community and safety for a lot of people, particularly trauma survivors. But we also really started to enjoy working with martial artists and giving them a chance to see. Because, you, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the phrase, yeah, I've always wondered if this would work. Right. <laughs> you know, I've always wondered, never had a chance to try it. You know, and, and it's so interesting. I can relate because, to that. <laughs> right? I know. I mean, and it's not a criticism. It's just a, it's a built-in limitation 
of a lot of systems where, you know, you, you can't really do that thing full force without putting your training partner in the hospital. So you don't do it. And, and then we've also, we also had a lot of, of people come to us who said, you know, I'm just blown away. I'm so frustrated because I'm whatever their rank is. And I got jumped in a parking lot and someone beat the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't respond. I didn't respond. And, and I'm so disappointed in myself. And so that's always an opportunity to have that discussion that just talks about those differences between yeah. art and application and how, you know, it's, it's magical thinking to believe that you're just going to be able to translate what you've been practicing within an environment that, that, you know, puts emphasis on, you know, not harming someone else in training. Everything stops, you know, if you actually, you know, ding someone or hurt them, of course, you know, it's honor and it's respect. And there's no one in your face screaming obscenities at you in a dojo, hopefully, or something's gone horribly yeah, wrong. Yeah. So when it happens in the real world to expect to be able to unlock the tools that you've been training in a completely different context is un- most of the time is, is, it's just not possible. It's just not possible because it's a completely different thing. And, and we haven't been prepared for the overwhelming and chaotic experience of a real world assault. Yeah. I, I love that you're talking about that because that's one of the things that, you know, my path was backwards to what yours was. I did go into martial arts eventually. And because I'd never heard of something like impact, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like, okay. And most martial arts schools present themselves as being self-defense curriculum. So I thought right. that's what I that's was right. doing. And like you, I, I don't think I could ever have gone to a place that was a single art. I, I went to, what was at the time, West Coast Taekwondo with Quadrant Ernie Reyes. And he's the, he's know, the greatest. And, and Tony Thompson. And love them. Exactly. The, between the two of them, you know, they both have this insatiable curiosity to, to grow and to learn new things. And, and the recognition that if you learn a stand-up art, but you don't ever learn anything on the ground, you don't have a complete picture. And so, you know, I, I ended up going through fourth degree and really being kind of a jack of all trades. But I had that moment that you were talking about, which was like, I don't know if this really would help me if somebody broke into my house or somebody was trying to steal my child at the park or, yeah, uh, you know, my wake up thing was getting robbed at gunpoint in, mm. in Tampa when I was in my early 20s. And it's like, I don't think that any of the stuff I'm learning here would help. Mm. Uh, exactly for the reasons that you're talking about, that the martial arts are art and you're not trying to kill your partner and it's consensual and it's about technique and, you know, being yeah. able to perform really well in that defined environment and and the self-defense world is totally not that you know it's not that they're incompatible but they're not the same so i i love that 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 was the, you know that your path came the other direction and that you've been taking this like real world sanity check and offering martial artists the opportunity to have that experience of you know i know i've trained this 50,000 times to do perfectly <laughs> <laughs> you know but does it work when I'm startled or, you know, when I'm, I'm not on a nice, smooth mat with air conditioning and, you know, where I haven't got some clue of what's coming. So you're really enabling martial artists to kind of open up and accept the possibility that maybe there is something else to work on as well. You know, not throwing out the martial arts as 
as useless because they're not, but just like maybe there might be something yeah. else that you need to add to your toolkit yeah. so that if something happens, you know, you, you don't have this horrible discovery in the moment of like, oh, crap, everything I've done so far is useless. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's not really useless, but um, it, it's I, just I hard to it. access. You know, you have to you have yeah. to build a pathway to get to access it, because we've always said that about training with martial artists. You know, in the beginning, in fact, you know, you can have a high ranking black belt training right alongside someone who's never hit anyone in their whole life. And in that first scenario, they kind of look the same. They do. They kind of look the same. It's because, you know, for people who haven't had that opportunity, even if they have years of training, oftentimes it's just sort of a chaotic, you know, wild haymakers are being thrown and like they have a, they have an idea of what they're going to do. And they, and we talk about using simple gross motor movement based techniques that hold up well under stress and, you know, big push pull muscles. So, you know, eye strike, palm strike, chop them in the throat, knee them in the balls. And I can often see when we're working with trained martial artists, when they're waiting for their turn, I see the wheels turning. They're like, I'm going to do the high spinning back kick and I'm going <laughs> to do la 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 because like this is my big chance. But of course, they're not factoring in the fact they're going to have someone in their face hassling them, you know, pressing them, oftentimes using super raw and, and menacing language. And mm -hmm. so often, you know, it's they, they end up just, as I said, performing kind of like an abject novice on their first scenario, but the learning curves are really short. So when mm -hmm. people start to get a handle on how their body and their nervous system is responding in these crisis moments, they, they start to unlock that tool chest full of all those years of, of training and they become, even with all the padded gear that our instructors wear, they be these People can can definitely a trained martial artist can definitely become dangerous and a problem for our our, our guys in the gear. So mm -hmm. you know it's it's just a great opportunity for for someone who's who's wondering who's looking for that to you know put it to the test and just 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 stress test it. Just we wouldn't think of doing so many other things until we've tested them, and mm -hmm. and yet there's sort of a blind spot around this. Oh well, you know I've been training all these years. I have a black belt. I'll be fine. Like well. Hopefully that's, that's right. hopefully it's true, but you don't want to find out when, you know, when potentially your life's on the line. But I, I will say well, and I think that, uh, you're, oh, go ahead. you're pointing out something really important though, which is, I mean, you, you do both things. You work with people who have zero training in any kind of martial art. And then you also work with people who have tons of training in martial arts. Yes. And yet the, the same vehicle can actually serve both of them because what it's doing is it's teaching them how the brain works, how physiology works, you know, what actually happens in the moment and how adrenaline affects you and then how to really tap into all the tools that you have, whether they're these complex motor skill things that you've memorized or the gross motor things that everybody naturally can do. So I, I just, to me, it's really cool that you can teach in both directions using the same vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I just think that, you know, as a, as a training method, it's, it's so adaptable and it's it's so valuable. The only thing any participant really needs is an open mind. Because I, I will say that like my journey into the traditional martial arts realm also included some time working with Rocky Mountain Combat Applications Training, which is out of Colorado. It's a guy named Peyton Quinn 
who wrote a book, he's written several books, but his original book was A Bouncer's Guide to Barroom Brawling. And he's, uh, you know, had all this real life experience as a bouncer, dealing with adrenaline, understanding what's happening physiologically, blah, blah, blah. And so years and years and years ago, Mike read that book and wrote this guy a letter and said, hey, I think what you're talking about your program sounds you know really great and i have this padded gear and another guy from impact did the same thing a guy named mark morris and and a woman named melissa salt who she was part of model mugging boston melissa salt went on to be dr ruthless uh, she's mm-hmm. she's really hardcore she's great she's a super super visceral writer and feminist and awesome self-defense instructor. So anyway, those those three converged on Peyton Quinn and Ramcat and brought the padded gear to Ramcat, which allowed Peyton then to start applying all these concepts that he was talking about that how to deal with adrenaline and chaos in real scenarios. So that that's how this bullet man gear, that's what Peyton ended up naming it got incorporated into Ramcat because Mike and Mark Morris and Melissa Soul brought it. So fast forward. Yeah, it was good. I mean, he, he knew, he knew he needed a way to be able to apply the stuff that he was talking about. And that was the key with his partner at the time, Mike Hanak, who was also a former bouncer. So they, they, they did like a super duper rock'em sock'em version of raw power slash impact personal safety slash model mugging. So anyway, fast forward to the late 90s and Peyton called me and he said, hey, I'd, I'd like you to start working with us with, with Bill Kipp, who was a guy who was also part of Boulder model mugging. And he became part of Peyton Quinn's team at Ramcat. He's gone on to do fast defense and he's developed his own kind of mugger gear. But Bill and Peyton and I were a trio for a while and we were making presentations and working with NAPMA and Black Belt Magazine asked him to do an interview and they needed a photo series and he wanted to show a woman defending herself. And so I did the shoot with them, which is how I met Bob Young, who is the editor at Black Belt. And he offered me an opportunity to write an article and that turned into a column on women's self-defense. And I bring all of that up because that was my entree into the wider world of martial arts beyond just Mike and his LA connections. And it was interesting. I, I, it was a super mixed bag because when I would write about the stuff that you and I are talking about, the differences between art and application and the value of adrenal stress scenario training, you know, some readers were really appreciative and said, I, I, been wondering about this, or I've heard about this, or I like what you're saying. And other people said, who is this woman? Mm-hmm. Who is, who is she? What the hell is she? T- what does she know? I've been teaching blah, blah, blah. I don't need any of that crap, you know? And so it was really enlightening for me because I, I only came with the idea of offering something that might be valuable. And I really felt like I worked hard to uh, never denigrate the value of martial arts, but only to say, this is something you can also add. Right. It's, it's not either or. And so it was really hard because I mean, I would get serious hate mail, serious hate mail. It was bad. And I was really discouraged by that. And you did that for five years? 
I did. I did it for five years and I shared my column. It was every other month and I, and I, I switched off months with Kathy Long and we wrote about ideas that were more specific for women's self-defense. And so that's where I was coming from. Black Belt thought it was a good idea because they were hoping to reach a different demographic than their normal 18 to whatever, you know, 18 to 35 year old men. And so they thought, oh, you know, maybe this will be something that would work. And, and, a lot of, of good exposure came from it, but I, I definitely was shocked and, and sometimes really disheartened by the amount of resistance there was just because, you know, people interpreted it as something that was threatening. And, and really, I just feel like it could be such a, a wonderful opportunity to, to try all that stuff that you've been practicing. So there's definitely been more wonderful reception than negativity, but there's you know, there's for sure resistance. And and I kind of understand, I mean, the gear that we use looks so stupid. It just looks, it's laughable. It looks like a cartoon with a gigantic head and the huge yeah. groin protector. But that's specifically what allows for honest to God, full force striking with, with no concern about harming your training partner. And, you know, we've, we've used a lot of gear over the years and Nothing has ever allowed for literal, like full force running knee to the head and full force knee to the groin. Mm -hmm. So as idiotic as it looks, <laughs> it, it's there for a reason. So I, you know, always just hoping that if, if someone, you know, really has an interest in finding out how their, their skills will hold up under stress, they can look beyond the silliness. Well, yes, I hope that too, because, um, <laughs> Because it really does have an, you know, I think the name of impact training is is interesting because you're having an impact on the role player, but the experience has an impact on you. And I think there's there's a lot of information to be gained from how people name things. So I'm very curious about how you came up with the name Raw Power. And I have to say, like I was I was scrolling through your website. And I found this amazing photo that you have on the page that describes your raw power philosophy. And I mean, we're not doing this on video, so I can't show it, but it's a <sighs> very small cat on some rocks. And the cat is facing this snarling dog that clearly wants to kill the cat. And the cat looks absolutely savage. It's got this paw stretched out, ready to just rake that dog right across the face. And it's such a powerful image. So I'm curious, like, what does raw power stand for? And why did you pick that picture? Raw power is an acronym. Raw stands for ready, aware, willing, which we consider to be the three most important components of real world self-defense. So raw is an acronym. And the reason that I chose that picture is, is because, I mean, it's, it really perfectly embodies the idea of, you know, it, it's, it's not about size. It's not about, you know, years of experience. It's not about a million repetitions of something. It's about fighting spirit. It's about being willing to do whatever we need to in that crisis moment to make ourselves safe. And it's really about commitment, just just fully committing to it. Because the more I believe I can do it, the more someone else is going to believe it. And, you know, that dog is snarling, but you can also see that it's a little bit 
you know, the, the cat is the one that's advancing. The dog is a little bit like, oh, shit. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's really something that we're, you know, that we're really emphasizing in every class is, you know, the most important component in, in these situations is fighting spirit. It's, it's the deep belief that we have the right and the ability to live a safe life. And I tell every single class, you know, I, I could train with you every week for a year working every technique, you know, known to man. But the truth is that in that crisis moment, if we have divided mind, if we have a question about our right or our ability, all of that technique might not be as useful as you would think it would be. Because we have also heard countless stories of incredible survival, you know, people outthinking their their assailant or, you know, using the element of surprise even even before they had any training, you know, just just you know, reacting in a major way and and making it clear that they're not going to be an easy target. And obviously it depends on who the assailant is, but for the average opportunistic person, that's more than they're willing to deal with. Mm-hmm. They'd rather just move on down the road and find someone who's going to behave the way that they're used to. And then they can, you know, continue their pattern of success. So we're always wanting people to be the one that interrupts the pattern by having that huge response. Even if it's not, you know, beautiful, perfectly targeted techniques, if you fight like a cat that doesn't want to be held, you know, you, you, we all know what that's like. It It only weighs eight or 10 pounds, but if it doesn't want you to pick it up, there's no way that's going to happen. You know, that's sort of the mindset that we're really trying to engender in people. Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned like the dog's expression. Because if I had to put a little caption above that dog's head, it would say, I was not expecting that reaction. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. yeah. And that's really what we want to create. You know, oh, yeah. is that that thought in any potential assailant's mind is, oh, I was not prepared for that. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and really, it's, you know, th- there's these different pieces of that, right? It can just be, body language as we know we're not if we are are cognizant of of how our body language reads you know we can learn ways to carry ourselves ways to be present in the world that upon first glance like my guy that was just trolling the streets of beverly hills in his car looking for his next victim you know if Mm -hmm. i had known that just walking with my head up and looking around and and being engaged with the world might have been enough to just have him drive by. Of course I would have done that, but no one told me that. And so I was just lost in thought. I had my head down. I had overnight bags on my shoulders and I was just doing that lost in thought thing, which of course these days, the equivalent is walking with our faces buried in our phones and not practicing Mm -hmm. awareness, that kind of thing. But you know, that whole idea of reading energy and, and how simple it can be to just, you know, project presence and, and awareness as a baseline to just, you know, again, with the average opportunistic thing to just avoid a lot of that. That's something that as predators, you know, these people know what they're looking for and it's not someone who's paying attention. Mm -hmm. And so then of course we have the verbal interaction and we teach that piece as a separate thing. You know, there's, 
our, our entire training, of course, incorporates verbal boundary setting, assertive communication, and full force striking. But we can also just do a verbal only component. And that in and of itself can be revelatory for people for whom you know they, they've just never been taught that. They don't know what to say, how to say it. They don't even know that they're allowed to. And so giving people a chance just to learn in scenarios how to communicate effectively with someone you do know and may have an ongoing relationship with that on some level you need to preserve. Or again, that random person who I'm never going to see again, I'm, I'm going to have a different verbal interaction with that person. You know, just that piece alone for so many people is completely eye-opening. And depending on what their, you know, early socialization was around their their you know the rules around their their ability to speak up, you know, can can really start to change the way that they're viewing themselves. But but honestly, I feel like the combination of the two is is what supercharges it because when someone knows that they have a different gear they can shift into if the verbal is not successful, I think it mm-hmm. makes them even more inclined to engage verbally. So they don't mm-hmm. have that thought of, oh, what if this doesn't work? I've got nothing. If you know right. that you have something else that you can do, I feel like that gives people even more confidence and more willingness to stand up for themselves verbally. So what are what are some ways that women can deal with things like verbal harassment or threats or people trying to intimidate them either in a relationship or just a random person? And, and I'm just kind of bearing in mind that most women who do have to deal with stuff like this, it is somebody that they already have a connection yeah. to. So what are what are some of the best ways to to deal with those kinds of things? Well, I mean it's a it's a really long continuum you know, of course, between someone who's, you know, in a situation where someone is is hassling them or being disrespectful or something, and it feels kind of innocuous all the way to something that feels really quite threatening. But I mean, I think if you're talking about someone that we do know, depending on the circumstances, if it's someone that, say, I work with, who's being disrespectful, or annoying, or menacing or or anything like that, it's really important to let them know that it's not okay. And if they are not willing to honor what I'm saying, that there's going to be a consequence. Because, you know, of course, we see this all too much. And and it's it's been a complete, I mean, it busted wide open in the last few years, you know, with this acknowledgement of how, you know, rampant this is in, in different workplaces. So there. I sort of thinking of it think of it as an elevator that's going up with a sort of communication it's you know for first floor ding hey you know what I I really I do not want you to do that it's it's important that you hear what I'm saying what's happening right now is not okay with me and it needs to stop like that's their opportunity to get off the elevator if they don't listen ding elevator goes up to the next floor hey I told you no I feel like you're not listening to me and you can increase it floor by floor. And they're, they're being encouraged to get off at any, at any time now. But really, if it's a situation where there's, it's a workplace thing, it's really important then to, if they're not responding, to let them know that there's going to be a consequence and follow through with that. And it's, it's such a huge dilemma. Oh, it makes me upset even thinking about it because 
it's one thing to talk about this on an intellectual level, like here, here's how we do it. But the reality is a lot of people don't want to go to the, go to their boss. They don't want to involve someone else, you know, because they don't, they don't have confidence that this is going to turn out well for them. Mm-hmm. And we've, so this is, this is the baked in dilemma. Like we all have the, the right and the ability to learn and apply tools to stick up for ourselves. But the one thing that is never guaranteed is, you know, what the outcome of that is going to be. I think most of the time, of course, if it's something where, you know, the the person who's causing the problem is either kind of just clueless, maybe someone who has no sense of boundaries, who, who, you know, was raised to, you know, never give up son, you know, don't, don't take no for an answer, whatever that stupid line of thinking is, you know, it could be that, that person who just is clueless and doesn't understand how to take no for an answer, in which case that's a person who can be educated. And I might actually really be helping that person by being the one to set the boundary and, and help him understand or her understand that it's simply what they're doing is not okay. But if it's someone who's doing it on purpose you know, and, and someone who has malice, it's just, it's, it's up to the individual to decide, you know, what route they want to take. I, I would always advocate, you know, that direct communication, letting them know where your boundary is, letting them know it's not okay, reinforcing it more strongly, and then seeking help if, if that's the dynamic. And this is a person for whom, you know, there's someone over them a boss over them who who can actually bring more pressure to bear. I hate the idea that we have to put any kind of power outside of ourselves because I really want to be able to resolve an issue with the tools that I feel confident in. But mm-hmm. I think it's also important for all of us to understand that depending on what the dynamic is, this might be a situation where we simply have to go to someone else. If it's a if it's a personal relationship and you know someone's in any kind of a dynamic with like a romantic involvement i mean of course it's really important to not be in denial and pay attention to what is happening and 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 what the energy is with with the person who is is causing the problem i mean of course i would more often than not just encourage someone to separate themselves from someone who is actually unwilling to honor the boundary. And that's that's what we talk about a lot with our middle and high school classes is helping people understand that it's okay to set a boundary. And if the person is not willing to honor it, they're just not worth your time, which is a particularly tough concept for teenagers for whom, you know, acceptance and fitting in can be of such importance but we you know we we will demonstrate you know someone invites you over to watch a movie and you're excited to go and you might like that person and you're not feeling scared or you know leery or anything this is a this is a good thing and then you're there and you're watching the movie and then here comes the you know unwanted touch right the arm on the shoulder or the hand in your hair or on your leg or whatever and we demonstrate that if that doesn't resonate, if that's not what you want, you have the ability to clearly communicate what you want and need to have happen. So generally, I will, you know, give the hand back and make eye contact and say something like, 
you know, I'm, I was really excited to come over here and watch the movie, but I, I really, I don't, I really don't want you to like, you know, put your arm around me and touch me up. I'd rather really rather just watch the movie. I'm hoping that's going to be okay. And, you know, let that person know where your boundary is. And it's just fascinating because invariably I will have some teenage girl go, Ooh, you were a bitch Mm -hmm. from that demo. And then her classmates usually will say, no, she wasn't, you know, and then there's this interesting discussion that happens where they're talking about that. And that of course is a, a great way to talk about the difference between, you know, assertive communication and other styles of communication. So I feel like if I'm communicating as clearly as I can about what I want and need to have happen, and that other person is simply not willing to honor what I want and need, you know, it's, it's just, it's important to recognize that this is not someone who has my best interest at heart and I need to move away from them. And and what you're saying, I mean, that is so key for, for specifically the younger women in that age group that you're talking about, the middle school and high school ages. But also, I mean, I've, I've run into women in their twenties, thirties, forties, who are very uncomfortable with setting a boundary like that. And I think one reason why is because the it's because of the fear of what the cost might be. And just for me, working with youngsters and, and women who are in domestic violence situations and kind of seeing how those things tend to start with behaviors in those early teen years where... Yeah. Like the girls don't really understand what a healthy relationship is and don't know what the warning signs are that something can develop into a very unhealthy and even dangerous relationship. You know, what yeah. you're talking about is like, this is the very first sign. Like if you, if you say, you know, I, I, I really like being with you. I enjoy your company. You know, I really want to enjoy the movie and talk with you about the movie. I just don't want to get physical right now. And they don't accept that. That is a huge warning sign. And and yes, there's embarrassment, and the girls don't want to get known as being that bitchy girl who, you know, won't do this, that, or the other. But if they also understand that sometimes that is just the first step along a path that can end up being a very bad path. Yeah, um, I think that's helpful, and and we need to have more of those conversations too, because we have to combat that fear of. If I do stand up for myself and, you know, the other person doesn't like it, something bad's going to happen to me. You know, my life will be ruined is kind of how it gets. Yeah, <laughs> it seems. I, it's actually like if you go along with it, your life can be ruined. Yeah. I mean, obviously, for kids who have no frame of reference for it, it's a particularly tough sell, right? Because in their yes. life experience, they're like, well, I don't, I don't even relate to this. What are you talking about? But of course, we also know that so often it's happening in the home. You know, people are being broken down and and having their their boundaries violated in small and large ways that inform their identity. And that is something that is, you know, a pre-indicator for sure in so many situations where someone ends up in an abusive relationship because it's the earliest thing they knew. It feels very mm-hmm. familiar. It's the devil you know. And mm-hmm. so that and 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 very occasionally, you know, sometimes I will have kids come middle and high school kids pull me aside 
after class and tell me their story. You know, every now and then someone does feel comfortable enough to talk about what their life experience has been, even, even at that young age. And so it's really, it's, you know, I, I think that the value of the empowerment based assertive communication and self-defense model is that for people who have prior negative life experiences, be it, you know, emotional abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse, you know, it, it can give us a really powerful way to put a new ending on an old story. Um, because we now have some new tools. So now, even though I never responded that way verbally before, now I'm going to do it. And because I'm doing it while experiencing some of the, you know, physiological and, and neurological impacts of the chaos of adrenaline and, you know, stress hormones coursing through our system, because we're training in that stressed frame of mind, it does have a really powerful ability to sort of tape over the old negative life experience and record something positive on top of it. It's a really kind of fascinating component of scenario training. But if you can get someone in safely into that altered state of mind, and then from that place, give them something new to fall back on, um, it, it really is quite transformational. I know for me, you know, before when I would get triggered on the street, the whole tape would start to run of the bad thing that happened and, you know, mm-hmm. no detail spared, but through scenario training, you know, you're able to tape over that. And now your nervous system and your unconscious mind has something positive that it can sort of grab onto. And so um, it's, it's really, it, I mean, of course there's, if we gave everyone truth serum walking down the street, you know, we'd really find out what people's life experiences are. Most of us are carrying a burden of some sort, be it from our our home environment or some traumatic event that happened at some point along our life. But I think the culture now that is acknowledging it and recognizing the necessity to talk about it and not just to hide it away like prior generations were just like, don't talk about that stuff is that's, that's where the healing is. And so something like adrenal stress scenario training is just one modality that, that can be used honestly in a therapeutic realm. I mean, it is, of course it is self-defense, but we've definitely had students say that was like five years of therapy, you Mm -hmm. know, in one course. So I, I really believe that the more we can give people the tools, whether it's when they're very young, before something traumatic happens, or if they're able to, you know, seek it out after after trauma has occurred, we really all do have the ability to heal ourselves, to to re-empower ourselves with with something that we didn't know was even available before. And it also helps us understand more about the dynamics that, you know, were at play in our former lives before we got re-empowered. So I, I don't know. I just obviously <laughs> huge. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate just because not only are you living safer, but you're also healing yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're creating new neural pathways in your brain. Yes. And I mean, the brain is such a remarkable thing. And I, to me, that's one of the most powerful things, especially when working with people who have already experienced some kind of violence or abuse, um, because the fear of being re-triggered and, and experiencing it again 
can keep them from doing this kind of work. And I think understanding that it actually can help, you know, and it's not just like some kind of woo woo. Ooh, if you do this, you know, you'll you'll be able to kind of change what that experience was. It's like no, actually, really, you do. You, it's you really how your do. Brain works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's not it's not woo woo wand waving. It's it's science. You know, it's it is how the brain works. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that yes. can be really helpful. Well, speaking yeah. of tools, I have a question for you. On like one thing that I get asked a lot is. Like if I see something happening with somebody else, you know, see it on the street or I, I have a friend and I know something's going on, what's the best way for me to be like a courageous bystander? How can I mm. intervene or do something to help? Yeah. I mean, obviously in this moment it's it's on people's minds more than ever. You know, how how mm-hmm. do I how am I how can I be of service when I see that happening? And and really I think that there's a number of of really great strategies. There's there's all sorts of training available right now. If people are, are looking for something that's a little bit more structured, there's a group called Hollaback. And they mm-hmm. have been offering some really interesting trainings along with, oh gosh, it's an, it's an Asian American organization that's been partnering with Hollaback to offer these online trainings for you know, bystander intervention, how to be of service. And, and people are all saying sort of a version of the same thing, which is, you know, try to do different strategies like distract or delegate or document what's happening. And, you know, there's, there's different ways to engage either the person who's being targeted by maybe just engaging with that person and saying, hey, there you are. Oh, my, you know, I've been waiting for you. Where, where, everyone's over here and just removing them from that environment. Other people mm-hmm. are talking about engaging with the perpetrator and to just distracting for a second, saying, hey, can I just ask you a question? You know, trying to distract that person long enough to get, you know, give the targeted person a chance to disengage. I, I saw a really amazing demonstration recently. It was a bystander intervention in a party scenario. And a woman was like totally backed into a corner and the guy was all over her and he was just starting to lead her out of the room. And another woman, as she walked by, just like spilled her drink on them and said, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, wow. Sorry. (laughs) And that was enough of a distraction that she could say, oh, come with me. Let me get you cleaned up to the woman. Um, So it's it's really interesting. You know, I'm excited by I mean, I'm heartbroken, of course, that in this moment, there's so much attention on it, but there is. And the good news is that people have become wildly creative with, you know, different ways to try to educate people. I think the main thing that all of us need to remember, though, it's really important not to put ourselves in danger in that moment, because that's not going to help anything. So just like everything with, you know, real world self-defense, it's distance. It's really important that if we're trying to uh, be of service and, and intervene, that we Assess the situation. Uh, don't get too close to someone. Don't let them get close enough to grab you or harm you. Um, so stay at a safe distance while you're trying to get a bead on what's happening. And then maybe start your verbal engagement from out there. You can, you can try you know, a verbal interrupt. Hey, what's going on over there? Is everything okay? What, what's happening? You know, and just letting someone know that you're watching is mm-hmm. often really helpful. I've done that. I've just stood on the periphery you know, of, of a situation and watched until the person noticed me and then sort of, you know, straightened up and disengaged and, and moved away. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, there's, 
course, so many of us have our cell phones. And so documenting what's happening is incredibly important. But again, you know, this is, this is, it's a balance because I don't want to get like right in someone's face with my phone and put myself in danger. So, you know, I know I'm sort of all over the place. I have so many, so many thoughts about this, but I, I do believe that there's safety in numbers. And so if there's a way when I see something happening that I can engage other people and we can go in together, that's going to be the best bet. Have you been struggling with concerns about your emotional or physical safety? I want to let you know about an exciting new coaching program that can help you get peace of mind and confidence. I've spent more than 20 years learning how to recognize and avoid people and situations that might be dangerous and how to get out of threatening situations if I couldn't avoid them. I would love to put this experience to use, coaching you in designing your own personalized strategy for keeping yourself safe. Now, my normal coaching rate is $500 a month, but I figured out a way to make this as affordable as I possibly can as an exclusive offer for just eight people. This is the Power Up Your Safety Laser Coaching Program. And in this program, I will work with you over short 15-minute calls to tap into your natural abilities so that you don't have to memorize techniques that you might forget in the heat of the moment, to develop strategies, tools, and skills to protect yourself and not rely on someone else like 911 or your significant other to step in and save you, to learn physical self-defense skills based on what everybody can do that work no matter what your age, size, or shape. You also learn how predators, abusers, and criminals operate so that you can recognize warning signs and avoid being in dangerous situations. You'll create mental blueprints for real scenarios that you might face, which means that you'll be ready to act, not stuck trying to figure out what to do in the moment. And you'll develop a powerful mindset so that you are motivated to take action and don't feel intimidated or stuck in fear. So for these eight select clients, this program is less than $84 a month for a full year of unlimited 15-minute laser coaching sessions with me. We start with a 30-minute call so that I can learn more about your specific concerns and questions about keeping yourself and your loved ones safe. And then with each 15-minute call, we will agree on your homework for you to do so that you can take action between calls to move forward. And once you've done your homework, you can schedule your next call. So for example, you can have your call on a Wednesday, do your homework assignment right after your call and schedule your next call right away. If you recognize that this is the perfect solution to move you from where you are now to where you want to be, just go to my website, CynthiaJolikerRude.com slash laser to find out how you can apply to be one of this select group of personal clients who will get one full year of personal coaching from me for under $84 a month. Now, I just want to let you know that I do guarantee my program and my coaching. So if during our first call, you feel as though this is actually not a program for you, I will promptly return your money in full. So there's no risk at all to you in exploring this option. 
For those women who don't want to jump into a group program or who don't want to spend large amounts of time improving their personal safety, this is the way to go because we can go at the pace that you want to go, spend as much time as you want to spend each week or each month, and what we cover is personalized and customized just for you. I'm so excited to be able to offer this solution for you to help you overcome your concerns about your safety and to finally get you some peace of mind, confidence, and freedom. And I'm thrilled to be able to offer it in a way that suits your schedule and can be customized to meet your specific needs. So if you're interested in becoming one of the select number of clients, go to CynthiaJoliCarud.com slash laser and sign up today. You're talking about like there's there's the standard line that self-defense coaches use that drives students up the wall, which is it all depends on the scenario. <laughs> yeah, well. But, <laughs> you know, but what you're what you're getting at is there are some basic principles and concepts that if you understand them, then you could be very creative in how you apply them. And you know, the examples you've given are great examples of really good solutions to try. And it's really, you know, it's up to us as the person who is pondering what can we do to use our yeah. intelligence and our, our insights and and figure out, you know, I'm going to try this one from here and see how that goes, you know? So I, I love that because that's, that really carries over into everything that we do in the realm of self-defense. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I think, I think, Engaging other people, really trying to um, recruit, uh, whether it's in a bystander intervention situation or for myself, is also something that is really important because a lot of the mindset in, uh, of course, you know, martial arts is, uh, you know, I'm fighting, I'm taking care of this, I'm, I'm, and and I want to know how to do that if I'm all by myself, and of course that's mm-hmm. what we're training for in self defense also, but in the real world. If there's any way I can recruit help, if I can draw attention to what's happening, um, I'm going to try to do that. And that's especially important with um, like young people for whom they can feel so embarrassed. They're so concerned about causing a scene and is this going to be embarrassing? And oh my God, it's so awkward. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time working with that also like never underestimate the the power of numbers. So if I can open up my field of vision, you know, break that tunnel vision and look around and say, hey, I need help over here. Or, you know, you in the in the red sweatshirt, do you have a phone? Can you tape this? Like being super mm-hmm. directive, delegating and recruiting help, whether you are watching this happen to someone else or it's happening to you can be exceedingly powerful because, you know, if we're ta- again, if we're talking about a an incident that's happening on the street where this the the bad guy is probably counting on it being quick and quiet and successful like it has been in the past, mm-hmm. drawing attention to what's happening can be really a really powerful deterrent. You know what I love also about that is just for me talking to young women who are in this demographic of you know teens or early twenties uh, kind of stage. Like one thing that I have heard over and over and over again is like, I want to feel a sense of sisterhood that like I can step in to help another woman or 
that others are going to kind of have my back. And yeah. so what you're talking about, you know, is, is awesome. And what it requires is that, that we also be willing to be that person for somebody else that we do step up and say, yes, I do have your back. I am going to, you know, come and stand with you. I am going to join this group and, and present safety and numbers and, you know, cause a commotion, draw attention, you know, help by calling the police or whatever we, you know, you, you got to have both. You got to have the, the courage to ask for the help, but then you have to have people who are like, yes, I'm going to take a stand for you too. And I yeah. think that's what this generation really wants to do. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I have a 22 year old niece who's definitely way more tuned in, way more proactive than I ever remember being and has been since high school. So yeah, I agree with you. I think that people are definitely more connected to the idea of community and of coming through for one another. Um, I, you know, since 9-11, since Let's Roll, you know, I feel mm -hmm. like when we see stuff happening caught on tape, you know, in airplanes, not always, but oftentimes that you're going to see more people that are willing to engage like, oh, no, you are you are not taking this plane down. Right. So more people are getting engaged. And and it's interesting, you know, I I feel like since this horrifying surge of hate crimes in the Asian American community you know, has been at the fore and on the news. I get so many questions about it. I, people are constantly saying, you know, how can I be of help? How can I be of help? So I, 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 it's always terrible and heartbreaking that it, it takes something significant to sort of wake us from our self-involved, you know, lives. But if we could all just have a more awareness of who and what is around us and a willingness to engage uh, in, in small and large ways. I mean, of course, we'd all be so much better off. And, you know, the, the people that are feeling emboldened to target and threaten and harass and humiliate someone else might start thinking twice if they know that they're going to encounter a bunch of people who are saying, oh, no, 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 that's not happening. You're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's when the tide turns. I think when it's, when there's enough resistance that's consistently going against their attempts that, that, you know, people start realizing, oh, okay, I'm, you know, this is no longer, this is no longer going to be successful. And of course that's always, you know, that's been the dream for self-defense forever, you know, Let's start seeing more stories on the news, success stories of someone defending themselves, of a, of a woman, you know, beating the crap out of someone who tried to abduct her, rather than the inundation of all the terrible stories that are, are you know, so readily available in the 24-hour news cycle. Like, not, not only would more, more reporting on the success stories help embolden people and, and give us confidence, but it, it would, it might also make people think twice about perpetrating these crimes as readily as they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely change the calculation. Yeah. yeah. I know that there's part of that. that's like, you know, that's a, that's a, a drum we've been all banging for a long time, but I, I, I honestly do feel like in this moment, it's very heartening to see that more and more people really are 
cognizant of the problem and feeling like they want to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. I have that same sense too. And it's a very, it's a very good development. And I, I think it is kind of a one-way switch. I, I, I hope, and I believe that once people wake up and are, as you say, you know, ready, aware, and willing <laughs> yeah. to take action, you know, for themselves and for other people. That's not something that, you know, you do one day and then the next day you're like, eh, nah, I'm not going to do that. It's just, right. you know, it's a, it's an inner shift. So yeah, the more inner shift we get, the better. Definitely. Definitely. And, and the sooner we can learn it, the better, you know? And, and, mm-hmm. and again, I, I really think that's something that is hard because I completely understand that people don't want to rob kids of their innocence. That's something that, you know, we definitely hear a lot. Oh, I, I want them to be able to enjoy their, their childhood. And, and, but the reality is, especially in this moment with so many kids having phones and having access to information constantly coming in, um, you know, I think the idea of at a, at an appropriate age, you know, not, not when they're super, super little and, and, uh, you know, that would just be scary. But when, when kids are getting into middle school to really start giving them those tools that they need, the awareness of, of the difference that they can make in someone else's life by paying attention, you know, the tools that they have at their own disposal to communicate assertively and all that stuff. Like if, if it could just be, viewed as something necessary and valuable and incorporated into curriculum i mean that's (laughs) that's where the change could really happen but at least here in los angeles the only schools that are doing that are private the public schools won't touch it they will not touch it i think it's it falls into the same realm as if we give them condoms they'll have sex right which is (laughs) like you know teaching kids how to communicate assertively, even teaching them, you know, simple physical self-defense skills, it's it's anti-violence. It's not making them more violent. It's 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 helping it's helping them feel empowered, helping them uh, you know, avoid problems and be able to communicate more effectively, which if everyone could do that, you know, there would be ripple effect. So I think that that's, yeah. you know, that that if, if I had one dream, it would be that we could get these tools to people in a more meaningful way at a much younger age. Well, amen to that. I'm totally on board with that. And I am sure that many, many, many of our listeners will be absolutely on board with that too. And, uh, you know, perhaps we'll hear from some people who are doing that kind of work. That would be Yeah, cool. I would love to know. I would love to know if, if people have successfully been able to incorporate those kind of life skills at younger yeah. ages. Well, I have just a couple more questions for you and um, then we'll wrap it up. Okay. So, yeah. So, so many women are frightened by the thought of a weapon like a knife or a firearm being used against them. So what do you, what do you tell women about that? What do you advise and, and how do you help them deal with that fear? I start, I start by talking about how weapons are so often used to help the perpetrator achieve their goal. So, you know, it's, it's being used to intimidate. It's being used to, you know, instill fear and, and gain compliance. If someone wanted to just 
shoot me, they could just shoot me right there. But if they put a gun in my face and they say, get in the car, it's, it's, it's a different thing. And, and obviously same goes for, um, any other kind of weapon, but the idea is just giving people that, that moment of clarity of just because they're brandishing the weapon, it's, it's not the same as actually using it. And so I encourage people to talk, start talking, start asking questions, start negotiating if they can in that moment, um, to be able to just sort of give themselves a second if if they're not able to run instantly let me backtrack if there's any way to flee instantly that's what i'm going to encourage mm-hmm. always and and people will say oh my god you know what if he shoots me in the back you know what if he chases me down and stabs me as i'm trying to run away and you know of course there's n- no way to anticipate every eventuality but again if someone's using that weapon to intimidate me into doing something and or moving me to a secondary location and I can break away and run. I always tell people, you know, it's as, as terrifying as that sounds, it's, it's much more advantageous to, if I'm going to be harmed, have it be in a place where someone might actually be able to help me, like find me and help me. If I, if I get in that car and I'm able, he's able to take me somewhere else, I'm in very, very serious trouble. So you know, a number one, if I can break away and run, I'm going to do that. If I can't, then I'm going to start talking and I'm going to start seeing if I can negotiate. Maybe I can get them to put, a, put it away. You know, there's a whole book that's from the early 70s called Her Wits About Her that is success stories of women who used their formidable minds and they stayed in their bodies and they found a way to save their own lives. And a lot of that is talking and negotiating and put that thing away. You don't need that. I'm not going to do anything. I, you know, and as soon as they drop their guard, then I can, you know, go for vital spots. I can see if I can harm that person enough that I can now flee. So talking and negotiating uh, into a more advantageous position is also something that I would always tell people to do. I love that. Yeah, and I've never heard of that book. So that's going on my list. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's it's out of print, but it can still be found. And it's one that just is, you know, s- some of the situations because it was written so long ago, you know, obviously show their age, but just mm-hmm. as a, a, a on a on a deep level, just that idea of examples of fighting spirit, outthinking and outsmarting someone who had a, a, an intention. It's really, really, really inspiring. And really, oh, you know, cool. I mean, we know that the one thing that's, that's unavoidable is the reality that if, if someone is highly motivated, you know, with a weapon, they're trying to get me to do something that I don't want to do or get me to go somewhere that I don't want to go. Um, you know, I might have to fight. And if, if I do, I'm, I might get harmed. You know, I think that that's an important reality when people are talking about that, learning that kind of defense, because there's simply no way to guarantee someone's safety in that dire situation. Or, or you know, obviously in any self-defense situation, I'm likely to get hurt. But, you know, it's it really ultimately comes down to, you know, where 
where is that line in the sand for me? What am I willing to fight about? And if this person is trying to take me somewhere, you know, I have to decide, is, is this something that I'm, I'm going to fight about? Personally, the answer is yes. That's a decision that everyone has to make for themselves. Um, if it's someone who's brandishing a weapon because they want my belongings, I'm probably going to give them my belongings. I mean, again, like, you know, every circumstance is different, but fighting over stuff with someone who, who seems motivated and, and they're armed, just, you know, to me, it's not something I'm willing to fight about, something that's replaceable. But if they want me to, to go somewhere or they want me to submit to whatever their goal is, I'm, I am definitely going to fight about it. Love it. Love it. So this, you might be surprised by this question, but I have to ask because I am absolutely overwhelmed with curiosity. So I saw <laughs> that you created a self-defense-based nutrition program. How yeah. did that happen? <laughs> and like, what are the similarities that you see between nutrition and self-defense? Okay. So yeah. So I had been teaching for a million years and we had a lot of students who uh, had various eating disorders, who had different health challenges that were related to prior trauma. So, you know, we have people that had come to our class seeking empowerment. Now they were starting to feel like, hey, you know what? I, now I'm willing to tackle, I'm able to tackle other areas of my life and, and really live something that feels like a fuller, safer life. And so I thought, you know, I want more skills. I want to be able to help people on that journey. You know, now, now that they've re-empowered themselves with some physical and verbal skills, maybe they are ready to tackle their health. So I went to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition which at the time was meeting in New York City every uh, month, one weekend a month for a year. <laughs> so I went wow. to New York City one weekend a month for a year. <laughs> and, I, and I did this amazing training and it was really, it's holistic health and, and nutrition coaching. And it was all super interesting, all these different dietary theories because nothing was one size fits all. And, and it was one day that I was walking to the airport and I thought, wait a minute. Essentially, when you boil down most of what I'm learning, it's the same ideas that I would be teaching someone in a self-defense class. You know, these, these very basic health strategies were in alignment with what I teach. And so I took an article, the very first article that I ever wrote for Black Belt Magazine was 10 self-defense strategies everyone should know. And I drew nutrition corollaries for all those strategies. Like awareness, avoidance, boundary setting, keep a safe distance, use a non-confrontational stance, you know, don't panic if you get knocked down. All, all these things that I would teach someone had, in my mind, direct nutrition corollaries. So and cool. I, yeah, I thought, you know, well, I've never heard of that before. And so the idea is, you know, can, can we look at our nutrition choices from a more empowered perspective? And can I make my decisions proactively and even perhaps defensively if that's what's necessary? And so that was the program that I developed. And it's, uh, it's definitely interesting. It's definitely unique. It's, it's a kind of a hard sell because to the average person, they're going, huh? <laughs> Nutrition and self-defense. What the hell? 
but the it's but it's it's built on the same empowerment model and so week by week we're looking at a self-defense strategy and its nutrition application we're looking at different types of food and people are challenged to create recipes that you know will expand their knowledge base give them more confidence and familiarity with different ingredients and depending on what their specific goal is you know maybe they want to lose weight or maybe they want to improve their you know their cholesterol or whatever then we can tailor it to really fit their needs but it's it's sort of one stop empowerment shopping you're you're getting some everyday safety and self defense stuff while uh, learning how to eat more healthfully I love it. That is such a cool, a cool thing. And it makes sense to me. You know, both things are about life enhancement, right? How do you, how do you live your life in a better way and protect your mind, your spirit, your body? You know, it makes sense. What you put in makes a difference and how you approach it. It it totally, I can totally see the parallel. I love it. (laughs) And it was, you know, when I was, when I was really developing it, I was working a lot with uh, martial artists and uh, presenting at different conferences and camps and stuff. So I would do this, this presentation of the programs called the Kung Food Way. And (laughs) I would do these presentations and, you know, I would say, look, let's be real, everyone. The, The fact of the matter is that for most of us, for most martial artists, the thing that that's going to kill us isn't going to be a, a random attack on the sidewalk. It's going to be a heart attack on mm-hmm. the way to the dojo, you know, and people sort of, you know, nervously laugh and murmur and whatever. But, but the reality is that there's, you know, sort of a big disconnect oftentimes where someone will, you know, on their way home from class, stop at a fast food joint. You know, they've just spent all this time practicing saving their life and then they eat some crappy thing that, so there was kind of this interesting disconnect and it's not about shaming people. It's just, you know, drawing that awareness to the fact that if we really look at the statistics, the thing that's going to kill us isn't going to be the thing that we've been training for in the dojo. Right. Right. I I love it. And um, to me, it's, it's really tying together the fact that self-defense is about empowerment and embodiment yeah and that's why to me it makes absolute sense that these two things go together i love it (laughs) oh good good i'm glad i'm glad you do (laughs) i mean (laughs) if i have a chance to explain it it's it of course people go oh but of course it finds a lot more purchase in in the world of of people who are already safety-minded so that's fine You know, that's fine. It's just, it's not the kind of thing that someone who's completely disconnected from that can relate to very quickly. They might understand it after a five minute explanation. (laughs) Well, now more people know about it. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. So, so how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? I think it's really important for us to be kind to ourselves and to recognize that a lot of what we are carrying is imposed. You know, there's a lot of societal conditioning that has, has told us to be a certain way, to do one thing and not do another, to, you know, if we, if we want to be desirable, do this. If we want to get that job, do that. And even those of us that grew up in a, a pretty empowered home, 
you know, like I can say I did, you know, all, all girls and, you know, those messages are insidious and they're, they're coming in through so many different avenues where it, it sort of causes us to, to question ourselves. And so I think that, I think the main thing is just to really, you know, be, be kind to ourselves. If we have had negative life experiences that have informed the way that we exist in the world to really honestly look at them and try to get a greater understanding of what happened and why, and then, and then seek support, seek support, whether it's in the realm of, you know, a therapeutic environment or something more physical. There's a lot of people that I know that say that they really started to reclaim their power and, and, you know, feel more independent and more confident just by like getting into their bodies physically doing a sport or an activity. I mean, it doesn't even necessarily have to be something that's self-defense related, but I think challenging ourselves is really the main thing. If there's something that we want to do and there's a voice that immediately says, no, don't do that. Like, look, just hold on for a second and, and challenge that voice. You know, why, what, what is the thing that's stopping me from doing the thing that I want to do? What is the, you know, is it an old message? Is this something that's real? Is this something that I'm using as a protection device? And, and, and be willing to break through the resistance to at least give it a try. Because I think the more that we're willing to challenge ourselves, you know, that we inherently start to, to feel more, more confident and more capable and braver. And then it just becomes a new way of thinking. So I do believe that we all have the ability to turn around negative experiences by challenging ourselves. And, and I really, you know, I know not everyone is going to have access to an empowerment based self-defense or even verbal boundary setting course. But if you, if you can do it, whether or not it's something that you, you know, want to continue doing or even had been your primary focus, like give yourself the gift of doing something that feels scary. And, and, and then we come through for ourselves and we show ourselves what we're capable of. You know, it's, it's too easy to, it's very easy, not too easy. It's very easy to be convinced that, that we are limited by societal imposition. But I mean, honestly, Many, many years ago, right when I also started self-defense 30 years ago, I also decided to jump out of an airplane. And I decided that oh, I loved okay. it. And I, and I kept doing it. I, I became a skydiver at the same time that I started learning self-defense. And it was so interesting because people would say, oh, my God, do you have a death wish? And I said, I've never felt more alive. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm saving my life every time. I'm saving my life and having a really amazing, you know, experience, but I'm certainly not saying everyone needs to become a skydiver, but whatever that thing is that makes us sort of tense up and go, nope, 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 I'm not going to do that. Just sit with it for a second and see if there's a, a possibility that the, you know, that they're really, that the reason we're having that reaction is, is because it's just that important and we need to do it. I don't know. Is, I, everyone's different, that but that's so cool. Yeah. I, I, I know that sometimes our, 
are, you know, we're not doing something because honest to God, we should not be doing it. <laughs> so that's, that's important to know also. I mean, not everything needs to get pushed through, but there are lots of times where the answer immediately comes up. No, just because of old messaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even our messaging. Oh, definitely. Oh no, for sure. For sure. The imposed, the imposed limitation. No, I just, I, I love that you, <laughs> You jumped into skydiving at the same time that you jumped into self-defense. And, it, you know, again, it, it makes absolute sense. It's it's like, it's really starting to wrestle with, you know, what do I want my life to be about? What is, what is the quality of my life going to be? Am I going to live small? And am I going to, you know, this is what happens right when we're scared is, is we shrink back and we shrink away and we, we make our world smaller. Yeah. And so both the self-defense training and doing something like skydiving is, is just a resounding, no, I'm not going to live my life small. I am going to take risks. I am going to learn skills. Because you didn't just go, oh, I'm going to jump out of a plane today. You learned the skills first, right? Yes. And you probably started <laughs> small. Like you didn't just leap from 50,000 feet, you know, with a breathing system on. You know, you started That's small. Right. Right. And, you know, it's a great thing because one of the things, whether you consciously knew it or not, that you were doing was you were learning how to manage fear. You were learning how to navigate through fear and you know, doing it through both of those vehicles of self-defense training and skydiving is cool because that translates into every other part of your life. Yeah. So I just, that's I love sure. that that's where that went. That is so cool. I'm just, I, I kind of got goosebumps as you were saying that you know because it's just like wow what a what a rare woman you are to do something like that and yet how very you that thing you know those two acts together really are i I have to say i felt like a superhero and in that phase that era i just i really it it absolutely transformed the, the way that i viewed myself. So yeah, that 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 worked for me. It's certainly not everyone's bag. But I will say this, this is my one PS about skydiving. So I did 40, no, I did 39 jumps over the course of, you know, the, the time that I was really into it, which might sound like a lot, but it's really not. Skydivers, you know, have thousands and thousands of jumps. But in that period, I did 39. And then I stopped because I was working a lot and I couldn't get out to the drop zone regularly. And for safety reasons, they insisted that you, you know, jump every couple of weeks and I just couldn't. So I just thought, okay, that was that part of my life. Fast forward seven years and a friend said, I really want to go skydiving. And so I said, I'll, I know where to go. I'll take you. And I decided after all those years, I'm going to do my 40th jump. I stopped at 39. I'm going to do 40. So I went all the way through ground school again, eight hours of ground school for the, because it wasn't a tandem jump. It was a different thing called, I don't remember what it was. It was like, I went, I went out with two jump masters holding on to me, but then they let go of me. So I landed myself anyway, eight hours of ground school. And, you know, again, with 39 jumps under my belt, I knew what I was getting into, but I was still super, super nervous. It had been so long. And so they say, okay, it's, you know, your group is going. And I have conscious memory of walking across the dirt runway. I remembered climbing into the plane, but then I have no memory, zero memory until I'm actually in free fall. Wow. And I, my brain goes click and I'm back in my body and I'm out of the plane and I'm in free fall and I'm communicating with both jump masters and they're cueing me and I'm doing, I'm responding, I'm doing everything they're telling me to do. 
And then, you know, I, I pull my ripcord and I land and they go, great, you know, you're good to go. It's all still there. You can jump on your own again. It wasn't until I watched the video, I had them, you know, videotape me for posterity that I uh-huh. saw that on the way up to altitude after jump, climbing into that plane, I was laughing and singing and joking with people. I have no conscious memory of it. I was completely on autopilot because it was such an incredibly overwhelming, like, you know, stress hormone experience to be back in this plane after seven years. And I always talk about that as like my, my personal testimonial to the value of adrenal stress scenario training. You know, when you learn something under that kind of stress and it gets stored in your, you know, unconscious, you know, in your nervous system, in your unconscious mind, in your muscles, like I was doing everything exactly like I had done it a million times, but I was out of my, out of my mind. So it was wow. really amazing to see the video. And I'm like, I did that. Oh my God. And like, <laughs> you see me leave the plane, perfect technique. Everything physically was there, but I just, yeah. So it was very encouraging to me because it made me understand that, you know, in, in a very, because I thank God have not been assaulted since learning physical self-defense. I have not had to physically defend myself, but it gave me a, a tremendous sense of, oh yeah, it's all there. And if, if needed, even if I'm totally freaked out, it's actually still there because, because I just flew up to altitude without remembering it. Right. Wow. That is an amazing story. Wow. But you're you're right. I mean, it really does. It's like, yes, there is definitely reason to be um, confident that all that you've put into learning both things is is there, even if not you're not conscious of it. That is that is really cool. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a cool story. <laughs> ah. <laughs> That's just great. Well, uh, before we wrap it up, can you just share how people can find you? I'm sure there are going to be quite a few people who want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you're up to. So can you just share where, where you can be found in the world? And of course, yeah. we'll put all of your contact info in the show notes too. Great. Yeah. So I'm based in Los Angeles. So we teach our classes generally here in the LA area, although we do travel. So if, if people have a group and they want training, we are always happy to come to you if it, if it makes sense for everyone involved. And our website is rawpowerselfdefense.com. And on that website, right now, we actually have a whole bunch of classes coming up here in the LA area that we're excited about. Stuff that's specific to different communities. We have a a verbal boundary setting class coming up for AAPI community. And we've been doing a bunch of those recently. It's been incredibly powerful for the Asian American Pacific Islander community here in LA to have an opportunity to train and commiserate and learn some tools to deal with these horrifying hate crimes. And we also have some all gender classes coming up, which is not our usual thing, and LGBTQ for people that you know really specifically want to train in an LGBTQ group. We're completely thrilled to have such a full schedule. So if people are in the LA area, and we also have our women and femmes class. So you know people that are female identifying are very welcome to join these classes. So we have a lot coming up this summer and fall. It's really great. And our team is growing. We're adding new muggers, <laughs> which is what we call our male instructors. So we're, we're adding some new muggers and just 
really excited about what's happening right now. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Meredith, for coming on the show. This has been such a blast to get to pepper you with questions and hear all of your thoughts and insights and uh, stories. It's just been great. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really my pleasure. I, I appreciate it. And and as I said earlier, I, I I love your podcast. I'm so happy that you're doing this and that you're you know, allowing us to learn about such interesting and inspiring women. It's, it's just fantastic. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. This has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.